2 Samuel 13 and 14. I am so very aware this morning of how much I need the Lord. This passage enumerates, elaborates on some of the most heinous sins known to mankind. Rape, incest, murder. As I have worked through this passage this week, it has been so hard to hear. As I write this sermon, so hard to put into words what to say, so much so that at every turn in the process, I thought, how can I gloss over this? How can I make this more palatable? I'm feeling for you this morning. And yet this passage is in our Bibles. It's in God's Word. It is here for a purpose. These are the Scriptures. These are the sacred writings. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that they, even these chapters in our Bible, are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that all Scripture, including these chapters, were breathed out by God and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. So I have two basic questions. A lot of text, somewhat long sermon, but two basic questions that I hope to be able to answer this morning. How is this passage profitable for us? And second, how does it make us wise for salvation? How is it profitable, and how does it make it must wise for salvation? The first question, how is it profitable? What does it have to teach us? How does it reprove us and correct us? I think, quite simply, what it is doing is it is showing us, in full color, the consequences of sin. There are many people sinning in this passage, and they will have consequences for their sins, but our attention is drawn specifically to the consequences of David's sin. Last week, Dan did a great job, if I can use that word, of highlighting David's gross sins of adultery and murder. And although David repented of his sin, and although God took away his sin, there were still consequences for his sin. Through Nathan, God spoke a word to David in chapter 12, verses 9 to 10. He said, you've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Behold, I will raise up evil 
against you out of your house. We've got to get this as evangelicals. God forgave David his sin. Amen? Grace. Abounding grace. And yet, there were consequences for his sin. And some of those consequences are listed in these two chapters before us today. A friend of mine divides these consequences into two categories. I thought they may be helpful for us. I won't have any slides this morning, so you may want to write these down. Two categories. Consequences of sins David modeled. Consequences of sins David enabled. We'll begin by looking at these two categories of the consequences for sin. That'll take up most of our time this morning. But then at the end, we're going to look to the cure for sin. See, the consequences will show us how this passage is profitable to reprove us, to correct us, to hopefully teach us to walk in the way of righteousness. But the cure that I want to highlight at the end will show us how this passage makes us wise for salvation. And the two are related. Is we're forced to look on the consequences of sin and to see the seemingly dead end of them. It causes us to lift our eyes up and to look for the cure for our sin. So let's begin with the consequences for the sins that David modeled. That's point one, or section one. The horrible things that happen in chapters 13 to 14, at the most simple level, we are meant to see that they are directly related to the sins that David committed in chapter 11. So David took Bathsheba. Now Amnon will take Tamar. David killed Uriah. Now Absalom will kill Amnon. This is really sobering. I don't want to minimize grace. I don't want to do that at all. But this is really sobering. How often have we seen this story told? That the sins of the parents are repeated in their children's lives. If I'm honest, the things that frustrate me and grieve me most about my own children are things they do that they learned from me. It's not inevitable that our children will repeat the sins that we commit, praise God. And yet, we're fooling ourselves if we talk ourselves into thinking that the sins we commit, even in private, will not have some negative effect on our children. This passage is profitable for us parents to teach us that we need to beg God to help us 
to live lives of integrity. Well, I've been putting it off for too long. Let's get to it. The sins that David modeled. First, the rape of Tamar. We're meant to see these similarities. And there's similarities between David's sin with Bathsheba and this sin here. But there are also differences. And the differences seek to show us the intensification of sin. How sin moves from bad to worse when it is left unchecked. There are five main characters in the first 22 verses of this story. David, then his firstborn son, Amnon, who is the next in line for the throne. Then you have Absalom, who's the thirdborn, but we don't know where the secondborn is. He's only mentioned once back at the beginning of 2 Samuel and then is absent. So the two next in line sons of David. Then you have his nephew, Jonadab. And then you have his daughter, Tamar. Similar to David, Amnon takes notice of a beautiful woman. But there's something different here, and we're meant to see the difference. This is not just any woman. This is Amnon's half-sister, Tamar. Similar to David, we're told that he loved her and was lovesick because he couldn't have her. But as we'll see, he doesn't really love her at all. He's simply inflamed with lust for her. Verse 2, it says, It seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. We know what he wanted to do. But why does the text tell us it's impossible? It's important for us to get this. It's because God's Word expressly prohibits back then and today any sex outside of the context of marriage. And it prohibits any marriage between two close family members, including a half-sister. So Amnon is stuck. His passions are on fire. He's sick with love, but he sees no way to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Enter Jonadab, his cousin. As we read in verse 3, Jonadab was a very crafty man. Now this word crafty, if you were going to give the most basic translation, it would simply be wisdom or wise. We actually see the same word later in this chapter. And guess what? It's the same word that was used to describe the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. So why does the ESV translate it as crafty instead of wise? Because a wise man in this case would have done something very different than what Jonadab did in this situation. A wise man would have done like the wise father in the book of Proverbs instead started flashing alarms, sounding the sirens, the dangers of walking down this path. That's wisdom. Wisdom would have said, look at what God's Word says. And look at the consequences that are laid out in God's Word for violating God's covenant that He has made with His people. 
That's what wisdom would have done. But similar to what we see in our day, Jonadab essentially says, why should the law get in the way of love? The world's version of love. In our day, we just change the laws. Make them do whatever we want them to do so we can get whatever we want to get. Here the temptation is simply to go against God's Word, His law, His wisdom. If you love someone, then you should be able to have them, right? That's the wisdom of the world. That's Jonadab's wisdom. And so he concocts a plan for Abnon to take what he wants. He counsels him to pretend like he's sick and to ask David to send Tamar to him to prepare food for him to eat from his hand. The plan works. She comes to care for her sick brother. But now he has her all alone And the unthinkable happens. This is what we read in verses 9 to 15. She took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she had brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, she's grasping for straws. Please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he loved her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. How is this story profitable for us? Let's just acknowledge that while we may not have gone as far as Abnon went, what we see here is a reproof and a correction for us. It shows us lust for what it really is. It is not love. It is hate. Love gives to someone else and seeks what is good for them. Lust takes from someone else only to satisfy our own pleasure. 
It is hatred. And so now the man who had schemed to get Tamar in his room wants her out of his sight. Verse 15. Whereas before he called her to come in and to lie down, now he tells her to get up and get out. I think she is a reminder to him, a visible reminder to him of the horrible thing he has done. And so again, seeking what's best for him, he puts her out of his presence. She again pleads with him in verse 16, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. Now this may seem odd as though she is saying, now that this has happened, we may as well be together or I want to be with my abuser. She's not saying that at all. Please don't misread this. What she is doing is the same thing she did last time she cried out. She's quoting Scripture. You see, she knows that in God's Word that the punishment for rape, the penalty, is that the person who committed that crime, they've got to take care of that woman for the rest of their life, their physical needs. Because in that culture, after something like this happens, you're not getting married. You're destitute. And she's saying, you've done something horrible But this is even worse. Not only have you taken my virginity by force, but now you have kicked me to the curb. What am I to do? David had committed horrible sin with Bathsheba, but at least he took care of her. In verse 17, Amnon simply tells his servants to put this literally thing out of my presence. She's nothing but an object to him. Sin has gone from bad in chapter 11 to worse in chapter 13. So, she puts ashes on her head, tore the long robe that she wore, the only thing she had as a sign of her purity. What a tragic story. And part of what makes it so tragic is that it's not old. It's as contemporary as can be. It's been told over and over again. Many of you in this room know this story very personally. And this is very hard for you to hear. But I want to say that one reason that this passage is here, there are a few, but one is this. God wants to remind you that He knows your story. He has recorded Tamar's story to say that He knows your story. You are not forgotten by God. But God also says something about that in telling this story. He says it's not your fault. And He says He hates it 
How do I know he says he hates it? You know, the amazing thing about this passage is Tamar is the only character that is speaking wisdom. She is the only character that is speaking the Word of God in this situation. And she names the sexual abuse that has taken place. She names incest. She names rape. She calls it outrageous. A very rare word used in the Bible. And every time that it is used, it is used to speak of the most heinous of sins. God says through Tamar's quoting Scripture, sexual abuse is outrageous. Tamar also knows what God's Word says about the consequences for sin like this. It brings shame on its victims It ruins the lives of those who sin sexually and also those who are sinned against. Is there healing that can happen? You bet. Does it leave a mark forever until Christ returns? Yes. We need to know both. Many parents want to cover up abuse. Many schools want to cover up abuse. Churches have become proficient at covering up abuse. The Bible says, God says, I will not cover it up. I will put it on the pages of my word to tell you what I think about it. And to let you know that I will deal with it. There will be justice. It may not be today, but it is coming someday. God also made provision in His Word for justice to be handed out speedily through those who are in positions of authority. Who is the one who is in the position to execute justice in this situation? It is David. But David won't do it. He has his tail between his legs following his sin with Bathsheba. His wings have been clipped. Look at verse 21. When David heard of all of these things, he was angry. That's a great sentence. If there was another sentence to follow. Anger is the right emotion. Outrage is the right emotion. But this is outrage without any action. David does nothing. We'll see somebody else who's going to do something later in the story, but he's not authorized to do so. David was authorized to do so. As a father, he was called to discipline his son. He was called to care for his daughter. But he does nothing. As a king, he is called to execute justice, but he does nothing. Which leads to further consequences. It leads to Absalom doing something. Verse 22, Absalom said nothing, 
because he hated Amnon for violating his sister. He said nothing because he knew his father would do nothing, but he is planning to take matters into his own hands. And that leads me to the second consequences of sin that David modeled. So we're still in the modeling section, and that is the murder of Amnon. The murder is similar to David's murder of Uriah in that it involved an elaborate plan just like the previous plan. Absalom invites his father and his whole court to go to a sheep shearing party that he has. But he knows that the cost of something was so great that David would turn down his invitation. And that's what he does, which sets the stage for the next part of his plan. Send the crown prince. Send the next in line. Send Amnon. He can serve as your representative at my party. And that's what David does in verse 27. Another thing that's similar to David's murder in this murder is that they both involve drunkenness. They both involve other people doing your dirty work. So as we see in verses 28 and 29, one pastor puts it this way, Absalom tells his men to wait until Amnon's loosened up during happy hour then to strike him dead. And that's what they do. David catches word of this. There's so much I could say here, but I want to cut to how does David respond to what he hears? We heard how he responded to what happened with Tamar. How will he respond now to what has happened with Amnon? We're told in verse 36 that David wept very bitterly for Amnon. Verse 37, he mourned for his son. Day after day. And this could be translated, he wept for his son for the rest of his life. I want you to get that because I'm going to make an interpretive move here in a moment that this is part of the puzzle. So he's clearly heartbroken. His emotions are welling up inside of him like he did before. But before, when his emotions welled up, They led him to do nothing. Will he do something here? How does he feel about Absalom? What will he do with Absalom? This is where we get to verses 38 to 39. We are told Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. I make it a point to very rarely correct major translation issues in my preaching, but today I just feel like I have to. Because I think while these words are acceptable words for translating the original Hebrew, they're not probably the right ones. And I think they miss the context. The word translated as longed to go out to Absalom means that his energy is used up. The footnote gives you a clue. In my translation, it's footnote 7. It says it can be translated as he ceased to go out. That's better. One commentary says it probably means that his enthusiasm for going out against Absalom is used up. 
This fits the context of everything else that we see going on, and those words are acceptable translations. This is the point. Absalom has lost all resolve for justice. He does nothing. And it's not because he's been comforted about Amnon's death. That, again, is one way to translate the verb. But you can also translate it as remorseful. And I think that fits the context better. So let me paint the fuller picture to drive the point home. David's lost all resolve to act in justice against Absalom because he's remorseful about Amnon's death. Not comforted by his death. Remorseful. He sees that his sin is what led to Amnon's death and he will never forget it. He longs, I mean, he mourns for him till the day that he dies. He's sapped now of moral energy to execute justice against Absalom. He does nothing in the face of heinous sin. A sin that looks so much like his own. We're left wondering who will do something. This whole saga reminds me of an anti-drug commercial they used to play on TV when I was a kid. The dad catches his son with a bag of dope and he rebukes him to which the son says, I learned it from watching you, dad. This should be very instructive for us. should warn us of the consequences of sin. So often when we sin, we not only experience the normal consequences that you would think of for that sin. But what happens is we lose our moral credibility to lead. We lose our moral resolve to do what's right ourselves and the moral resolve to call those in our charge to do what's right too. These are the consequences of sin. They are meant to instruct us, to reprove us, to correct us. We've seen the ones that David modeled. Let's now look at the ones that he enabled. I'm going to try to be as brief as I can here. But I just want you to notice that David is complicit in so many ways in what's going on here. He enabled Tamar's rape by sending her to care for Amnon. What an idiot! He enabled Amnon's murder by sending him to Absalom's party. He knew something was up. That word send, it was critical back in chapter 11 to show David's sin against Uriah, his sin against Bathsheba. Now it's being used again to highlight David's enabling work. He also enabled Amnon's murder by not disciplining Amnon. If David would have dealt with Amnon, Absalom maybe wouldn't have had to. And now we see he's not willing to deal with Absalom. So just like Absalom knew David would do nothing about Amnon, now the story turns into chapter 14. Joab knows that David will do nothing 
about Absalom. And so Joab takes matters into his own hands. Look at verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Again, an acceptable, but I think an unfortunate translation. I think the Hebrews suggest the exact opposite. According to John Woodhouse, it should read, Joab knew that the king's heart was against Absalom. But it's complicated. Although the king knows that justice should be exacted in Absalom's life, he doesn't have the guts to do it. Joab knows this. And Joab knows that this creates a major problem. What is that major problem? If you leave this deal unchecked, it's going to cause a civil war. If you're not willing to go and give Absalom what he deserves, which is justice, but you're going to keep him at arm's length, do you not think that that's not going to come back on you? Absalom's one of the best looking men in all of Israel. We read that a little later in chapter 14. We'll learn next week he is a skilled politician. He knows how to get people on his ticket. If you keep him at arm's length, he thinks that he's done a good thing in killing Amnon. It is going to result in a civil war and it's going to crush your house. That's what Joab knows. That's my take on this. So he comes up with this scheme to get Absalom back. You need to keep your friends close. You need to keep your enemies closer, I think is his rationale. And so he approaches, we are told in verse 2, a wise woman of Tekoa, a wise woman of Tekoa, who will go to David, similar to how Nathan went to David in chapter 12, and tell him a story that will then convict him of his actions and cause him to turn and bring Absalom back to the house. That's the plan. But we know from the get-go that this is not a good plan. First of all, we know Absalom needs justice. Secondly, we know this word wise reminds us of the wisdom of Jonadab. It's probably not God's wisdom. Verse 3 tells us explicitly, the words that were in this woman's mouth were Joab's words. Nathan's words were whose words? God's word. This is man scheming, conniving to try and make things work. Now, I think Joab's motives are right. He's trying to avoid the collapse of David's house. But he goes about it in the wrong way. The thing that needs to be done, everybody in the story knows, Absalom needs to be dealt with. And that is the only thing that will bring about peace. Justice is the only thing in this story that will bring about peace. I'll summarize briefly her tactic. She says she's a widow, verse 5. She has two sons. They get into a fight. One of them accidentally kills the other one. You see where she's going? Then the people in the clan want to put this murderer to death, but she protests. That will leave me without any sons. That will leave my husband without a name. David sees the logic. He agrees to act on our behalf. I won't let anything happen to your son. He'll come under the protection of my rule. 
And then she basically says to him in verse 13, you're the man. Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. But is this a really godly, you're the man parable? Is, God, is Joab using godly wisdom to get David, I mean Absalom back? Again, I think no. The only thing that will settle this issue is justice being observed. This is a situation in her story of manslaughter. He doesn't even deserve death. Absalom committed cold-blooded first-degree murder. It's a capital crime. Also notice that Nathan's parable was designed by God to awaken David's conscience. What's going on here is this wisdom of the world again speaking in, trying to make David go against conscience. He's already going against conscience by not doing anything. This parable, the only thing it does is to solidify the cement in the place where David is standing doing nothing. His plan works kind of, but not really. Verse 21, David allows him to come back, but then David keeps him at arm's length. So really, on the chessboard, things have not moved much at all. And David doing nothing will not bring the retribution on Absalom that he deserves. David doing nothing will not bring the reconciliation that Joab was hoping for. Eventually, in verse 33, he does get an audience with him, but there's still no peace because there's still no justice. David's neglect enables him, enables Absalom to stage a coup, which we'll learn about next week. We're left wondering, where is the justice? Who will bring it? These are for our instruction, for our correction. They should lead us to ask the question, am I enabling not only sin, but the multiplication of sin by not speaking up, by not disciplining my children, by not reporting things that need reported, by being shy of ever confronting anybody about their sin because we don't want to be seen as unloving. That's the most unloving thing you can do is to keep your mouth shut. Why are we so shy of rebuke and reproof and church discipline? It is all meant to lead us to restoration. When we don't engage in this, the situation's worse. We are to be warned of the failure to not act, to be reproved, to be motivated and trained for righteousness. But friends, this passage is not only here to correct us and to reprove us, it is meant to make us wise for salvation. How does it do that? It does that by every step along the way we're asking ourselves, where's the justice? We're reminded of a promise that God made to David 
back in chapter 7. That there would be one from his, one of his offspring always on the throne. Always on the throne. Over all of the earth. One who would bring justice. But in that same promise, he was also told that when your offspring commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. My steadfast love, I will never take from him. The promise to David stands, there will be one of his offspring on the throne forever, but that does not mean that I will not discipline And so as we're reading this passage, there's this tension that I've not brought to the surface yet. We have this promise in the background, and then we see David's offspring, his firstborn, the next in line. How does he behave? With the justice and the blessing that the people of God need? No. And so God disciplines him. Well, what about the next in line? We come to Absalom, and we see gross injustice as well. And so what does God do? He disciplines him. And we trace David's line through the Old Testament and things grow from bad to worse with the successive kings. There are some bright spots along the way, but by and large, it is a downward spiral that leads to exile, discipline for the whole nation because of the sins of David's son. The consequences of sin lead us to look for the cure. And where will it be found? In great David. Or at least he used to be great. In his greater son, Jesus. Who takes the throne of his father David, as the angel announced in Luke chapter 1. We know right there in Luke 1 that this is the one without iniquity. The one who will bring justice for all of the world. But then we have another tension. And that tension is that full and final justice that we long for. We won't get it until his second coming. You see, he did something that is even better than bringing swift justice right away. When he came the first time, he didn't come to judge. He will come to judge. The first time he came to bear the judgment we deserve himself. The first time he came to extend mercy to us. Do you want justice? I know you do. It will come. But don't you also want mercy for yourself? I hope as a Christian that you also want mercy even for those who have sinned against you. God has provided that mercy in the person of his son, Jesus. Second Corinthians 6 really stood out to me this week. The, the grace that is available to us, to people like David, to people like you and me, is available to those who even commit the most heinous of sins. I want you to hear that. You may be somebody like that today. And even if you're not, you may need to have your attitude towards those who have created those heinous sins adjusted this morning. 
Listen to what God's word says. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, the gross sins, but notice what he goes on to say, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It is not available to them. If you remain in your sin. Paul goes on to say, and such were some of you. (laughs) Such were some of you. I am in this list. But he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. God will bring justice on sinners on the last day. But we need to come to grips with the fact that all of us deserve it. From those who have committed the most heinous of sins listed in this chapter, to those of us who are greedy, we all deserve God's justice. But at Christ's first coming, He came to extend God's mercy. And it is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. You can be washed today as you wait for the justice that is to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you. Needed you to listen to this sermon, for me to preach it. But we need you now to rightly respond. Help us to grasp the real consequences of our sin. May that motivate us to throw off the sin that so easily entangles and to run the race with endurance that is set before us. But seeing these tough consequences also helps us to lift our eyes up for the cure that is found in your Son. And I pray that we would look to Him now in faith to bind up our wounds, to buy back the years the locusts have eaten, to ground us in hope that there will one day be full restoration when He returns. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.